Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Galatians. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and the guys will bring you a Bible. When you get a Bible from us, it's page 631. So we start this study. This study will take us right to Easter. So it's week one in the study of the book of Galatians. We're going to look today at verses uh, 1 through 10 of chapter 1. Uh, I'm, I'm always mindful of, uh, you know, my, my daughter Haley, well, each of my daughters, it's Susan, super critical of my teaching. Um, but Haley would always say, whenever you have a lot of quotes, whenever you read a lot of quotes, it typically means you haven't prepared or you don't have anything to say. Um, and, and, and so I'm starting today with a lot of quotes, not because I haven't prepared, not because I don't have anything to say, but oftentimes at the beginning of a book, it's just kind of helpful to let these things just kind of run over you, just, just kind of in, in, just, just all over you, so you get kind of the scope of, of what several authors say about the book we're getting ready to, to study. So let me just read you three or four of these. One author writes this, the book of Galatians has been conferred with such titles as the Magna Carta of Spiritual Liberty, the Battle Cry of the Reformation, the Christian's Declaration of Independence. It is clearly the Holy Spirit's charter of spiritual freedom for those who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Many church historians maintain that the foundation of the Reformation was laid with the writings of Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. The great German reformer said, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. Another author writes this, the message of Galatians is the message of Christian spiritual freedom. So you're starting already to, to get this idea of spiritual freedom. It, it, it's his deliverance by Christ from the bondage of sin and of religious legalism. Its message is particularly relevant in our own day as personal freedom has become a dominant emphasis of countless philosophies both within and without of Christendom. Another author writes, not many books have made such a lasting impression on man's minds as the epistle of Paul to the Galatians, nor have many done so much to shape the history of the Western world. For it rightly maintains that only through the grace of God in Jesus Christ is a person able to escape the curse of his sin, of the law, and to a new life to live, not in bondage or license, but in genuine freedom of mind and spirit through the power of God. Because of the powerful truth, Galatians is called the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation. It goes on and on and on. Let me read you one just a little bit different flavor. Galatians is a letter to recovering Pharisees. The Pharisees who lived during and after the time of Christ were very religious. They were regular in their worship, orthodox in their theology and moral in their conduct, yet something was missing. Although God was in their minds and in their actions, he was not in their heart. Therefore, their religion was little more than uh, hypocrisy. The Pharisees were hypocrites because they thought that what God would do for them depended on what they did for God. So they read their Bibles and prayed and tied and kept the Sabbath as if their salvation depended upon it. What they fail to understand is that God's grace cannot be earned. It comes free. The way out of, of Phariseeism 
is called the gospel. It is the good news that Jesus Christ has already done everything necessary for our salvation. If we trust in him, he will make us right with God by giving us the free gift of his grace. When we reject our own righteousness to receive the righteousness of Christ, we become, it's a great phrase, former Pharisees. So thus the title, so as you look at the title of the study, Fighting for Grace, it might even seem ironic because grace is that free gift that God gives us. What's the struggle? Well, well, it's the struggle to find grace and to keep it as grace. So I'll speak autobiographically. So I've been teaching for 20 years on, on, uh, at the East Valley Bible Church and now at Redemption, but in the, in the Gilbert campus for 20 years. And, and rarely is there a topic that generates so much pushback as grace. And that seems ironic when we really do comprehend that I'm saved by grace through faith, but then all of a sudden it becomes, but that's so simple. There must be something more to it than that. There, there seems to be this, and, and I would say the better the church, the more pronounced this is. So my friend Jamie Rasmussen has been teaching about grace for a year up at Scottsdale Bible Church, and he will tell you the pushback is huge. By and large, even those of us who know Christ as Lord and Savior are oftentimes scared of grace when we're confronted by it. Grace is a, great, grace is a, a marvelous thing, amazing grace. Sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's an amazing thing, but then we try to deal with it in our life, and it, it can become scary. Now, I'm going to read. Let's read these. I'm going to make one observation as we do. I want to read these 10 verses. Paul, an apostle, and he has parenthetically now, not sent from men nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me, so that's who's writing. It's Paul and then the guys that are with him. To, all, to the churches at Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that we may, might res, he might rescue us from this present age according to the will of our God and Father. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So that's his first five verses. Those of you that have been around, or if you just want to kind of flip and you start to look at Paul's letters, epistles that he writes, that's kind of a standard uh, a greeting. He identifies himself, oftentimes mentions others that are with him, oftentimes extends a greeting of peace, grace and peace, always in that order. Uh, he adds a bit of a doxology here, and he also adds a little definition of the gospel. So we'll come back and break that down. Here's what's missing. Look at verse 6. I'm amazed that you so quickly deserted him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. In essentially every other epistle that Paul writes, there's a, a section of commendation. So if, if you turn to the left, the next book to the left is 2 Corinthians. Uh, the book after that is 1 Corinthians. So it, 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 Paul's writing to this church at Corinth. This church at Corinth is all screwed up. It's got so much sin, so many problems, including the fact that Paul says there's a guy in the church who's sleeping with his mother, most likely his stepmother, and the guys in the church aren't dealing with it at all. Even to this church, so look at the beginning, Paul called as an apostle, verse 2, to, to the church which God has put at Corinth, 
Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. So everything we saw in the book of Galatians. And except he goes this, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus and that everything you were enriched in him and all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony uh, concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's this church that's an absolute mess and there's a section at the beginning and periodically throughout the book of commendation. Now, go back to the book of Galatians. There's that standard greeting, and there's no commendation at all. Paul goes right after it. He gets to verse 6. I, I am amazed that you so quickly deserted him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which was really not another only there are some who are disturbing you and wanting to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received and what we've delivered to you, he is to be accursed. Literally say, go to hell with that other gospel. That's what he's saying. For am I now speaking the favor, uh, 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 seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So I, I want to make this, this huge point is what's at stake here. And the reason Paul responds so strongly, it's, it's, not, he's, it's not that he's dealing with some unholy living. He's dealing with the most important issue, the supreme issue, the vital issue. It's the gospel. It's what is the gospel. So it trumps all the, other dis all the other discussions. Sometimes we don't think of it this way. When the church began, it was primarily Jews reaching out to Jews. So now the, the gospel is spread, and now the, the Jews are reaching to the Gentiles. And as the Jews reach the Gentiles with the gospel, it raises some questions. And, and the biggest question is, what's the role of Judaism or the law of Moses as it relates to the Christian faith? So, so is there a Judaism? Does, is it necessary for a Gentile to convert to Judaism and then from that to, to the Christian faith? Is there a part of Judaism that needs to be fulfilled in terms of the observance of the law for a Gentile to become a Christian. So from a, here you go, from a practical perspective, circumcision. Is it necessary for a, 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 an adult male Gentile to be circumcised in order to be saved? Which obviously has huge theological implications, but practical implications too, right? It's going to make evangelism among adult men a little, a little tougher than we would have hoped, okay? A little price to pay there. But, but, that, but you get it. So that, that's the issue. The issue is the gospel. What is the gospel? Is there anything that needs to be added to this gospel, primarily this gospel of grace? So, so it smacks against, and it wasn't just in Paul's time, it smacks against human nature. People love religion. They love rules and regulations, they, 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 especially as it deals with God. They want to come before God and somehow find 
a way to please a holy God through their own effort. So we've already talked about Martin Luther three or four times. Luther wrote this. I was a monk and kept my order so strictly that I could claim that if ever a monk was able to reach heaven by monkish discipline, I should have found my way there. All my fellows in my house who knew me would bear this out. So he says, I'm like the super monk, and all the guys who were in there with me, they, they would affirm that. All my fellows would affirm this. For if I had continued much longer, I would... What with vigils and prayers and readings and other works have done myself to death. So this is biblical Christianity as compared to everything else. All other religions, and including those religions that might have with it the idea of Jesus lived and died and he died for your sins. What Luther is saying is, I was the super supreme monk I was doing everything that you were supposed to do. They said Luther was going to confession. Obviously Catholic. Luther's going to confession literally every other hour. As he's leaving the confessional, he's thinking of more sins that he's committed. And he's saying, listen, if anybody could have earned their way in this, let me tell you, I was serious. But there isn't freedom in that. In John chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Does Luther sound free? John chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus said, So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Matthew chapter 11, verse 23, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, that's the issue that he's fighting for, is the gospel itself. And when I understand the truth and I understand biblical Christianity in terms of pleasing God, all of a sudden, it's not my efforts that are winsome to God. It's the work of Christ that he sees. And, and this is, an, so I was born and raised Catholic, grade school, high school, college. Okay? Now, I heard, I can only give you, I can only give you my testimony. I heard and, and I heard it, grade school, high school, and college. I heard over and over again, Jesus died for your sin. But, so, so there, there's a, there is a but that is in there. There is this truth, Jesus died for your sin, but there's now stuff you need to do. There's behavior that you need to perform. There's acts that you need to do. So I will have this discussion frequently in terms of, of people from a Catholic background. I don't, even, I don't argue this stuff. I'll simply say, let me, let me just tell you, I never heard salvation by grace through faith. Yes, I heard Jesus died for my sin, but I heard there was a whole bunch of stuff I needed to do too. And I would go so far as to say, when you have a whole system of indulgences, and now you've got people in limbo, and you're trying to do facts, I, I, You've got a works-based salvation there, no matter what you call it. So that's, that's what's at stake here. What, what, what happens in this is Paul's in the process of, of, of coming to Galatia. We're going to look at that. And he's under attack. So in, in chapter 2 and 3, I'm sorry, in chapter 1 and 2, it's very personal. Paul's defending the attack on, on the fact that he was an apostle. In chapters 3 and 4, it's doctrinal. 
because the challenge, here's what they do. They attack Paul as the messenger in that for, and therefore discredit the message. That's what's happening there. So it's doctrinal, justification of faith. And then in chapter four, I'm sorry, five and six is application. So, so I, again, one of the charges against Paul is that this teaching of grace leads not just to freedom, but it leads to loose living. So Paul's dealing with all of that. So Paul, Paul's taking all of that, and, 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 and here comes his defense of that. So that, that's, that's the background. That's the big idea. We got, we got one idea today, and that's here's the gospel. It's a gospel of grace. So we're going to take that, if you will, as a prism, and we're just going to go ding, 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 and hopefully see things, same thing, nuanced, a little bit differently. But the point is this, that the gospel is that Christ died for our sin, and in him and him alone we find eternal life. And there's nothing you need to do to be saved. There's nothing to add to that gospel. There's no act for you to perform. There's no good deed you need to do. You are saved by grace through faith. So let's kind of attack these 10 verses. Paul identifies himself, and then he adds quickly his title. He says, I'm an, I'm an apostle, but I'm, a, I'm an apostle not, not by agency of men. I wasn't elected to this. It wasn't that I desired this or self-proclaimed. He didn't say, call me Apostle Paul. No, I, I am there through the agency, not of man, but through Jesus Christ and of God the Father who raised him from the dead. I, I, was, I was appointed to this. God is the one who selected me. So as Christ selects those original 12, uh, Judas leaves, uh, he is replaced, and now Paul is added to this, Paul the Apostle. We'll look at it next week, because next week we're going to look at Paul's resume, his biography, we're going to look at Acts chapter 9 and, and following. But, but God selects Paul. Christ comes to him on the road to Damascus. And, he, and he's called out and he's apostle. He meets the criteria also at that point of having seen the risen Christ. So Paul goes, as you challenge my authority, I, I want you to understand that, that indeed I meet this criteria. It wasn't something that self-proclaimed. So it's me, the apostle. So he's establishing, a, very important here, almost always when Paul goes and, is, and talks about his apostleship, he's establishing authority, either, either because he's about to say something very difficult and he wants you to understand it's coming from God, or he's been under attack, that's the case here. He's been under attack and he's defending that, and, and, he, and he's proclaiming his apostleship based on the fact that God has chosen him. So Paul's writing the letter, and all the brethren who are with him, so he's got these other guys who are with him as well. And he's writing to the churches at Galatia. Now, we're not exactly sure. There's some disagreement about what these churches are, who, what, which are these churches at Galatia. If you want to keep your finger marked there at Galatians chapter 1 and turn to the left, page 599, it's the book of Acts. And it might be interesting just by way of background for you and if you want to go and do a little bit of study on it as well. Acts chapter 13 we are introduced to what I think make up these churches of Galatia. There's four of them. There's, there's a Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. So that's the beginning in Acts chapter 13, verse 1. It's the beginning of Paul's missionary journey. And so you'll see Paul starts on this journey. He, he is a Jew teaching to Jews, so his customary... Uh, um, procedure is to go to the synagogue to preach in the synagogue 
and praying that God would save people. A church would be established out of that. So he goes, he teaches. Um, look at chapter 13, verse 42. Paul and Barnabas keep going out. Uh, the people are begging them to stay, so they decide to stay a little bit. They stay the next Sabbath. The Jews come against them in verse 45. They begin to contradict them. So Paul and Barnabas are kind of run out of town. They shake the dust off their feet in verse 51. They head to Iconium. And what do they do? Same thing. They go to the synagogue. Uh, there's a number of Jews there. Um, there's Greeks as well. Uh, they begin to teach, and people begin to respond. But it's a mixed response in verse 4. They're divided. Uh, some side with the Jews, some side with the apostles. Paul goes to Lystra, and he's teaching there. And as Paul's teaching there, um, the Jews from the previous two locations, from Antioch and Iconium, they have uh, won the crowd over. So chapter 14, verse 19, they won the crowd over, and they stoned Paul, dragged him out to the city, and supposed him to be dead. So the Jews from Iconium and Antioch have come to Lystra, They've, they've rallied the people. They've now stoned Paul. That's a form of capital punishment. They looked at him, and their assessment was, as they drug him out of town, their assessment was he was dead. He wasn't. Okay? The disciples stood around him, and he got up, and he entered the city. This guy just doesn't stop. And he goes on, and he preaches, and, and, and he goes then to, to Derby as well. So this is the backdrop. That's the history. So Paul had gone to these towns, uh, obvi obviously his popularity or at least his recognition, his reputation is big in the community. Some liked him, some didn't. Uh, certainly the story has to be circulating. We don't know how to stop this guy. We thought we killed this guy, but he's back for more. So it's that backdrop that, that, that you have, background, as you look back to the book of Galatians, so he's writing to these churches. And he gives them in verse 3, Galatians 1.3, this standard greeting. Grace to you and peace. And what's the source of that? God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's talking about grace. Now, this would be powerful. It's a standard greeting, but especially powerful as he's writing to these group of people who have had Judaizers and others come in and present a gospel Paul's going to declare different than the true gospel. And it's a gospel then rather than generate freedom and grace has generated legalism and oppression. So he says grace to you. And grace, oh, we always see these together. Grace always precedes peace. Grace to you and peace. And where do I find that? From God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So religiously... If I'm trying to find this idea of grace and peace, ultimately, peace with God and the peace of God, if I'm trying to find it, the place to find it is in Christ and Christ alone. So some of you come maybe with a religious background and you're working. Maybe you even have a little Jesus in there. You may have come from a, a faith that even has Jesus in the name of the church. You may come from something like I said, suggest from my background. Okay? You come from that and you've got religion and you are pooped. You've tried everything. First Fridays, rosaries, giving, serving in children's ministry. You've been in Bible studies. Uh, you're one of these gals that goes to the Bible studies and you got all the different colored pens and you've marked all this stuff. You've done everything you can do and you're exhausted. 
These ought to be sweet words. Grace. Peace. Or maybe you're here today, it hasn't been religious, you're just trying to find grace and peace. You're trying to find some level of satisfaction in the, in the world system. You're never going to find it, no matter how much you accomplish. So let, let's say you're Nick Saban and the Alabama Crimson Tide. Okay? Now, in your joy is going to be found a week ago in the national title. Now, there, there's, that's terrific. When a national, it's got to be very satisfied. But if I'm trying to find grace, peace, satisfaction in that, it'll never do it, right? It'll never produce it. When, when the Cowboys won their first Super Bowl, Cliff Harris looked over at Charlie Waters, because they've been striving for this now for a long time. Been to the big dance, haven't won. Either Harris says to Waters or Waters says to Harris, doesn't matter. Still in the locker room, still sweaty, haven't even showered yet. Who do we play next? And the implication is, okay, we got that. I got, what is that? I was reading something, I think it was Bob Lilly talking about after one of the Super Bowls and the next morning and going out and looking at all the party tents and all the empty things and going, we won this thing. I'm just, I'm, there's just something. It just isn't what I thought it was going to be. Where do I find this peace, this shalom? It cut me slack on the term because it's kind of become bad in our country. This, this holistic sense of satisfaction. Where do I find it? In God, in Christ. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me. This could be to you today. All who are weary. You're just pooped. You're pooped of trying to be good. You've done everything you know what to do to please God. And you don't measure up. Let me just tell you. And you never will measure up. You can't do it. Quit. I love quitters. Be a quitter. Quit. Give up. You'll never satisfy a holy God. Here's the gospel. John MacArthur writes this. In verse 4, Paul gives us a succinct summary of the true gospel of grace and peace. Okay? So our peace is from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm talking about Christ now. Who gave himself for our sins so that we might, he might rescue us from this present evil according to the will of our God and Father. So there's this voluntary, here's how Jesus says it in, in John chapter 10. He said, I lay down my life, then I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Galatians 1.4, he gave himself up. Ephesians 5.25, he gave himself up. Titus 2.14, he gave himself up for us. That's the, that's the beginning of the gospel, is that Jesus came voluntarily that man had sinned, and man's sin had separated him from God, and there was nothing man could do to make that right. No sacrifice could be performed. But God, it's what we just talked about at Christmas, but God became man, lived a perfect life, and then, see what he says? He gave himself up. Why? For our sin. That's why he died in the cross. God made him Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, is that when Jesus died on the cross, there was this transaction that took place, and all the guilt and punishment and wrath that was due you and me and all of us that would ever believe, at that moment in time, all of that was thrust upon Christ so that he can say, it is done. That sacred transaction, Jesus paid the price. And now somewhere, our sin forgiven, somewhere in our life, there'll be that moment when we come to him in repentance and faith. That's the gospel. 
It begins with Christ. It ends with Christ. He rescued us. The idea there is he delivered us. One author writes this, Jesus' death was a rescue operation, the only possible means of saving men from the doomed world and from eternal death by providing them eternal life. Tim Keller writes, Christ's death was not just a general sacrifice, but a substitutionary one. This means that he did not merely buy us a second chance, but that he did all we needed to do. If Jesus' death really paid for our sins on our behalf, then we can never fall back into condemnation. Why? Because God would then be getting two payments for the same sin. That's unjust. Christ died. That's the gospel. Christ died. And you believe that. You believe that he died for your sins. You confess that God raised him from the dead. And the result is you will be rescued, delivered, that I come into the world alienated from God and I will stay in that condition except I encounter a risen Christ who delivers me from this present age, who delivers me from the sin in my life and in the world around me of the domination of my life by sin and by Satan and by the world system and by my flesh. And all of that was accomplished on the cross. And it was all done, do you see, according to the will of God. In Acts chapter 2, Peter delivers this first sermon, powerful sermon, again, primarily to a Jewish audience. And he begins by talking about Christ and Christ's death. And he talks about it, and the phrase in chapter 2 is the predetermined plan of God. This was God's plan from the very beginning. It's not as though God sent Jesus on some sort of mission here to be a political or economic Messiah, and the plans went awry, and all of a sudden he was swept away in some political revolution and consequently was killed. No, he died according to the predetermined plan of God for a specific reason, to save his people, you, me, us, from our sin. And when he says this, and here's this, he says, to him be the glory forever. When Paul contemplates this, there's only one thought process that he can possibly have, and that is God is an awesome God, and the glory is not to me, it's not because Jesus died and I did something. It's not because I was a good person. It's not because somehow I found favor with God because of anything that was good in me. Jesus died for me, and I have salvation in spite of me, not because of me. And when Paul contemplates that, all he can say is, glory be to God. He's the one who deserves it. So that's Paul's introduction. Somewhat of a standard introduction, though he puts the gospel in there kind of in one verse. He goes from there. He, 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 he did like a rocket ship here. I am amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is not really another gospel. I can't believe that you tapped out so fast. Like when I see that cage fighting, like, you know, you have your names. My, here would be my name. Tap out Tom. The minute they said, do, I go, I'm done. Don't even, don't even come near me. No, 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 no. Well, there's a little bit of that in here. He's getting, I don't get this. I am astounded. I am stunned that you so quickly, and that could be either easily or so quickly in terms of time or both, I cannot believe it 
I can't believe how fast you've deserted. And as you would expect, it's a term used in military context as well. You just walked away from your assignment. You walked away your assignment for another gospel, for people that have come to you, and not with freedom but with bondage, who come to you with another gospel. Now, there's a, there's a, a point here that's a huge point. And, and I want to make it. So we're going to flip through a couple of passages. So Mark Galatians, go to the left to the book of Acts and the 20th chapter to make a giant point that I think is really important to believers in all times and all places, but especially us today. Because Paul's going to talk about the, the supreme challenge to the church and to the gospel itself. And, and the point he's going to make is this. It's internal, not external. So he's saying goodbye. It's Acts chapter 20, um, verse, let's do verse 27. So, so Paul is saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus. And he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Now here's his warning. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to the shepherds of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Be on the alert. So, so what's Paul saying? He's saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus, and he's saying, watch out. He's not saying it's going to be persecution from the Romans. He's saying it's going to be the dangers within the church. He's not saying it's the attack out there. So if you read my emails and the stuff that people send to me and all this, you would think that the enemy of the church is the ACLU, the liberal left, the media, all the, you think it would be all of that. That's not what he says in here. The enemy of the church, he said, the thing you want to be careful about and afraid of are the people inside the church not outside the church. John MacArthur writes this, the most destructive dangers to the church have never been atheism, pagan religions, or cults that openly deny scripture, but rather supposedly Christian movements that accept so much biblical truth that their unscriptural doctrines seem relatively insignificant and harmless. So I'm talking to one day to a bishop of a Mormon church, and at the end of a three-hour discussion, he says to me, we're saying the same thing, just slightly different. And I said, no, what's scary is we're saying radically different things, and they sound the same. That's the difference. So it's the same thing in all of those discussions. You've got to be very, very careful here. Let's, let's stay on this journey just a bit so we can make this point. 2 Timothy, page 646. 2 Timothy, chapter 4. Love this passage. Love this book. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 and 7 and 8. We'll look at those first two, but in verse 6, Paul gives us the context here. And he, and he, and he says this, For the time of my departure has come, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. So what Paul's saying is, he's writing to Timothy, the cat he loves more than anybody else in the world, and he's saying, he's saying listen, I'm about to die. The time of my departure has come. Now, verse 7, and what I love about verse 7 is it's Paul's assessment of his own life. So we hear all the time, I want to hear at the end of my life, well done, good and faithful servant. Okay, well, that's Jesus' assessment and commendation, and we want that. 
Here's Paul. And to me, there's something really powerful about his ability to say this. It's his own assessment. He said, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I kept the faith. He said, I, I've been in this thing the whole way. I fought the fight. I finished the course. I kept, and now that's what we focus on, the faith. It's a definite article. He doesn't say I kept my faith. He said there was a body of truth that was passed on to me, and I didn't change it or alter it, and I passed it on. I didn't add to that gospel. I didn't take away from that gospel. Let's do one more. So it's page, uh, it's the back of the book, page 663, Jude. So if someday you get ambitious and you're going to read a whole book of the Bible in a day, Jude's a good one, one chapter. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus, brother James, to those who are called. Verse 3, while I was making every effort to write to you about our salvation, I felt necessary to write to you, appealing to you to contend. That word that's translated contend is actually hand-to-hand combat. It's, it's wrestling. In Ephesians chapter 6, it's talking about struggle that we have, not against flesh and blood. To contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints. So you get, you get the backdrop there. I want, you to, I want you to contend for the faith. Who's the enemy? For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn, and he says there's two things these, this group does. They turn the grace of our God into license, and they deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ. So from the beginning, the, the concern we ought to have is not what's outside, but what's inside. It's not those who just blatantly attack us, but, but those who come and, 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 and as Satan himself, not as a roaring lion, but as an angel of light or a subtle serpent. So this morning, I was almost, it was like 8.15, and Tim Mon came through and he said, I just came across this today, uh, some, something on a phone, an email or something, dangerous facing the church. And it was actually, it was false gospels, but let me just give them to you quick. It was the feel-good gospel, kind of different things we deal with. You know, God wants you happy. I always thought Larry Wright made this stuff up until it happened to me, but I've had the same thing happen to me. God wants me happy. My spouse makes me unhappy. God wants me divorced. Okay, so you hear that. God wants me happy. Here's the me gospel. What about me? This is all about me. So I like Jesus because he's like three wishes. It's the greed gospel. Health one. This one sets me off like a... And this is my one that just sets me off. These are the guys. And, and it was one of them was on this week. I'm not going to name his name. And he's awful. He's not, the worst, he's not the worst of them, but he flies his jet competitively with the one who does. And, and the fact they both have jets should make you puke. Okay? So it's this guy. And he's saying today, God's got a lot of work to do, and he's not going to be able to do it through sick people and poor people. And so here, here, this is dangerous. Number one, talk about putting people in bondage. So you come to me, and you have a sickness, and I say it's because you don't have enough faith. Or if you have enough, and this breaks down so quickly. It says, if you have enough faith, you'll be healed. Obviously, that must fail somewhere, right? Everybody's dying of something somewhere. And the theology of it, and this is why it's so wrong, is they'll go, by his stripes you were healed. So now they're messing around with the gospel and, and the atonement itself. So we would say in the atonement, Christ purchased for us our salvation. They would say, but he purchased your healing. 
He purchased your wealth. He purchased your bank account. All this stuff. This stuff is so bad, so evil, so rotten, so puts people into bondage, delivers nobody from anything. Okay? So that's one of those. A cheap gospel. Just believe. All you gotta do is believe. Well, it is that. Is that easy? Well, there's sin and forgiveness. A shallow gospel, it's watered down. There are many ways gospel. I watched Oprah, Oprah on cable on uh, Cox's Channel 100. And, and Oprah's got a new show she's doing now called The Next Chapter. And she's doing some really good stuff. Um, she interviewed Joel Osteen, Joel and Victoria, in their house the other day. And um, so you could raise all sorts of issues. But, but, but she asked him about his homosexuality as sin. And this is very similar. All, the, all these interviews with him are about the same. And, and he's very, he's very, it's very good. And you can, he, by the way, just, just stipulate, he seems like a very, very nice man. But he said, yeah, homosexuality is a sin. So that's good. Then she said, is Jesus the only way to God? So now we're, now, now we're there. And his answer is really an interesting answer. His answer was, Jesus is the only way to God, but there's many ways to Jesus. I thought, What? There's got to be an easier way to say that. <laughs> I mean, like a yes or a no would have helped. <laughs> so, so there's that idea. And again, I'm not, not a shot at Joel. I mean, he's doing his best, right? Okay. So, so in, in, in the midst of all this, here's what we say. Is there another way of self? No. There's no other way. So, so is a Buddhist and a Hindu and, and, and uh, uh, whoever else is praying, are we all praying to the same God? No. I don't even know how you get there. Newt was rambling about... Every time these politicians get into theology, they're just dumb. So Newt was rambling the other night about this same thing and essentially saying the same deal. And I'm like, how could you be so dogmatic and go, here's a guy who thinks Jesus is a good teacher, but not God. Here's a guy who thinks Jesus is God, and they both somehow have truth? That's just impossible. That's saying 2 plus 2 is 5, 2 plus 2 is 3, 2 plus 2 is 4. This is really, see, this is big stuff. That's why Paul goes right after it. He's not dealing with some kind of superficial issue. Here's what he says. I'm stunned at how fast you fell away. We had this moment. We're having a pastoral staff meeting five years ago, maybe. And one of the guys says, uh, we're talking about the doctrines of grace. And, and, and he says, that's just a given here at East Valley Bible Church. That's a given. That'll always be that way. Well, I'm a very non-confrontational person. Uh, uh, I, uh, much more from the front, but I'm one-on-one. I'm, I'm a... I'm a little weenie, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm easy. I give you the mon um, and let him deal with it or Neil or whoever. But, but I said, okay, I feel like I need to speak to this. I, I think as long as I'm teaching, the doctrines of grace will be here, okay? I got that. But I don't for a second assume automatically that because we teach what I believe the Bible teaches is true now, I don't for a second believe that 20 years from now we're guaranteed will be taught here either. Uh, but these guys weren't, they, it wasn't like they had Tom teaching them, or Larry Wright, or Chuck Swindoll, or John MacArthur. Paul's teaching them. And, and, and it's not just Paul's teaching them, it's not just his words. They've seen, think about this now. They've seen Paul stoned, drug out to the city limits, left for dead. He gets back up. I mean, this, this is not just word, this is word and deed, and this is Paul coming at this. And yet, they've walked away. He calls them in chapter 1, verse 11, chapter 3, verse 15, chapter 4, verse 12. He calls them brothers. He's saying they're believers. 
He's saying, have you deserted the one who has called you? It's in the Eros participle. It means he's called you once and for all. How can this happen to you? It happened so quickly. You deserted for a different gospel, which is really not another. The word that's translated another is like what we saw in, in, the, in John chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, when Jesus is saying, I will send you another, meaning the Holy Spirit. It means exact and the same. You walked away not for another gospel. It wasn't just the same thing said differently. You walked away for a completely different gospel. Only there are some who are disturbing you and wanting to distort the gospel. Disturbing means to shake you up, to agitate you, to stir you up. It it implies they're emotionally disturbing you. They're unsettling you. They want to distort, literally turning an idea into something the exact opposite. The gospel comes along and says it's grace. People come along and say it's grace plus. It's not grace, it's the law. It's not grace, it's what you need to do. And that always is going to have an appeal. When you, when you present the gospel, here's how you know. I'm walking along, taking a long walk one day with somebody I love dearly. We're walking along, and I'm presenting the gospel. And this person says to me, I want to make sure I get this straight. Uh, if I believe in Jesus right now, but I kill somebody tonight, and I die tomorrow, I'll go to heaven. Is that right? And so I'll always say the same thing. Yes, we don't recommend that. I mean, it's not something we say, right? like, oh, you're saved, I'll go kill people. We don't say that. But, but what I knew, see, what I knew, here's what I liked, is I knew I'd communicated God grace. So, so when, when I talk about Mother Teresa and Jeffrey Dahmer, okay, Gandhi's better than Mother Teresa. Gandhi, because it's easy, Gandhi's easy. Based on Gandhi's own testimony, where he denies the the substitutionary death of Christ, we know that Gandhi's probably one of the nicest men in hell. Based on his testimony. Either his gospel's true or it's not, right? Jeffrey Dahmer, on the other hand, who, who was a hideous person, cutting up people and eating them and all sorts of different stuff, supposedly, don't know, can't look in his heart, became a follower of Christ in prison, was baptized. So here you go. Gandhi's in hell. Jeffrey Dahmer's in heaven. So I always add now, so you get a mansion in heaven, but you may want to lock your doors just to be (laughs) safe. (laughs) Be careful. You don't ever know. Well, well, wait a minute, because you all laugh about this, but I guarantee you there's a whole bunch of people right now, who, and, they're, and they're, they're just going, give me, I want to get a hold of that short, fat guy right by the throat right now. That can't be right. It can't be right in religious terms. It's absolutely right when it comes to grace, because it's not based on how much sin they committed or how much good they did, but did they deal with the person of Christ? So when I come to grips with this, this is so cool. This is why it's so freeing is the closer I come to see myself through the scripture, all of a sudden what I see is I'm more sinful than I ever imagined, but more loved than I ever dreamed. I'm more sinful than I ever I'm despicable in my sin because it's not even the sins of omission, it's the sins of commission. It's even doing the right thing. Like when God saved me, 
Right at the same time, God saved a guy by the name of Tom Woods. So Tom, Tommy is a very nice, very just a nice guy, and I wasn't. Okay, so we had been saved about a year. We placed, went to a place called Chubbs. It used to be a great place to go and get a cheap, great chaser. So we're there, and Tommy and I are reviewing our year, and I'm talking about my life and changes that I've seen, and I'm saying, you know, Tommy's kind of interesting because they haven't. There's not much change in you. I don't mean that argumentative. I'm just saying, you know, Tommy. So here's what Tommy said. Tommy said, I'm doing much the same thing I always did. I'm just doing it now for the right reason. So I was a good person, so you'd think I was a good person. I went to this school to please my mom and dad. I got this. See that? That's how sinful we are. That's what Jesus deals with. So again, if you, the counterpart of this, when Jesus deals with those Pharisees, they set him off like a rocket ship. When you get to, when you get to Matthew chapter 23... Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You go around the world, all you do, and paraphrasing now, all you do is screw people up. You don't fix anybody. And you follow the law. So when Jesus comes to the Sermon on the Mount, he says, okay, here are the Pharisees, and they pray and fast and uh, give. I want you to pray and fast and give, but don't do it like they do. He's not condemning the action. He's saying, this is your heart. Along come these guys, and they come along with this false gospel, and it doesn't bring peace. And then he speaks in these glowing terms here. Verse 8. Even if we or an angel from heaven should reach, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that that we've been preached, let him be accursed. So if you're Joseph Smith and some angel comes to you and he preaches a gospel, other than this, it ain't right. Mormon.org. Here you go. Simple sentence. We believe that... Now think about the subtlety that we've talked about. We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by the obedience to the law and ordinance of the gospel. Sounds really good. Going to be believed. Boy, the atonement of Christ. Yeah, he's the general partner, but you're the limited. He did his part, now you do yours. Is that subtle all this is? Verse 9 We've said it to you before. We say it again. If a man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let him be accursed. So if this guy comes along and he's got degree after degree after degree after, I, and I'm, I'm totally open to this. It almost, I, I would say at least every other time in the Connect class, there'll be a question that goes like this. Tom, where did you go to seminary? Tom, where did you go to school? And, and I'm not proud of it, but the reality is I didn't even take a class. I didn't, even, I didn't go to school, okay? And, and so over the time, that's probably presented, and I know for some people, it's presented a problem for them, and I, I totally get that. I get it. But, but here's what he's saying. You get somebody that comes along, and like they've been to Oxford and Cambridge, and they've been to Westminster, and they've been to Fuller, and they've been to all these seminaries. More degrees than a thermometer they got. But at the end of the day, they preach a gospel other than this, they should be to hell with you and your gospel. That's what he's saying. This is a big deal. That's why he's so riled about this. This isn't some ancillary thing. This is, this is about the gospel itself. This is about Jesus Christ himself. This is about what he did and what he accomplished on the cross. Now, to the charge, and we'll just touch on it in verse 10, to the charge that, that Paul is a populist and he's just there, an apostle, because of the, the people, he writes in verse 10, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? 
If I were still trying to please men, would I not be a bondservant of Christ? I wouldn't be. He said, do you think this is a popular message? This is going to win people over? He said, all these accusations that somehow I'm just one of the people's guys and all I want to do is please people. No, here's what Paul said is, I want to communicate the truth. So what do you do? It's really simple. You believe this gospel. You rejoice in this gospel. You become familiar with this gospel. You understand the gospel. So that when a ball, and it should be frankly pretty easy, so when a false gospel comes along, so if anybody's saying, yes, I believe Jesus died for my sin, but. Now, this doesn't mean, here's what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you come and believe and then live any way you want if God hasn't changed your wanter. So it doesn't just mean that works and what we do are not important. They are very important. Not to produce salvation, but as a result of salvation. If I have an encounter with the one true God, if I have that encounter, my life should be transformed. My life will be changed. Now, here's been my experience. Maybe it's yours too. Is that there's all sorts of people who want to come along, and once you start talking grace, they want to add to it. And, and, and it's vicious. It's like, I, I know, a, it feels like I know a bunch of people who are running in P.F. Chang today, the half marathon and the marathon. So Frank Switzer, Frank will start in February teaching at our Acadia campus. So Frank's running the marathon. Frank gets up every, every Thursday morning and Sunday before he teaches at 2 o'clock and runs somewhere between 15 and 20 miles. Yeah, it's stupid. I mean, it's just, it's, it's really dumb. Three weeks ago, I got up at like 7 and drove to Eggington's, and I was exhausted. I, I was exhausted. I had, I had to eat. I had to eat more and rest. Got a room there at the Hilton just to rest. Okay. Here's, here's how insidious religion is. So, so they're running along, and they're marking these times. And those guys that are serious about it, they've got their split fractions figured out. They know where they are. They see the 10-mile mark. They know the number they're supposed to be. Here's what religion does. Religion, as you're running up to that finish line, they just keep moving it. It just keeps going further away. The closer you get, the more they move it away. You give them that supreme effort. You hit that wall. You break through that wall. You're going and going and going and going. And they move it away. And they move it away. That's what religion does. Religion never produces satisfaction or a win. Because religion will never please God. Only the finished work of Christ. So now, are you a sinner? Yep. But I'm not paralyzed by my sin. Because when Jesus... When Jesus died, he died for me. When the Father looks at me, he accepts me. Now, now take all of that. I've got to go now. Take all of that and contemplate the phrase that we keep in front of you all the time. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more or nothing you can do to make him love you less. See? This is not about you performing for God. That G Jesus accomplished that. And maybe just humanly, maybe you had a dad or a mom and your whole relationship was based on your performance. You know, you played baseball, you went two for three, dad loved you. You went 0 for four, didn't talk on the way home. Maybe you have a spouse that if everything's going well, they love you. If not, it's totally based on performance. And now we come to God and we assume the same thing and he's going, Tom, 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 relax, my man. I don't need your performance. It's because you love me that you obey my commandments. 
That's why he says this burden is not heavy. You're not running a race where they're moving the finish line. You've already won. You got it, man. You finished the race. He's declared you. I, I feel like some psycho babble guy now. He's declared you the winner. You have the victory. All that goes with it, you're accepted by him. Now, because he loves you. Why? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Now, out of a response to the love that he's demonstrated in Christ, now we want to live this way. Now, all of a sudden, I mean, all of a sudden, now, it's a Sunday morning. There's stuff to do. Maybe it's your only day of rest, and you come to a place like this. You give generously dough. You serve, hundreds of you. Why? To earn God's acceptance? No, but because he's already accepted you. You're his kid, and you're going, God, I'm not trying to repay you. I'm just responding to the grace and mercy you've given me. How cool is that? It all goes back to the cross. Here's what's going to happen if you're in the conference center. Matthew will be there in a minute to close your time. Here in the chapel now, Matt, Matt Dresback will come lead us in communion, our time of worship. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the balance of chapter 1, and we really see what, what I would call Paul's resume. He's very autobiographical, and he'll talk a little bit about who he was and the type of person he was and start to fill in some of the blanks you might have right now. Okay? Let me pray as Matt comes. Father, thank you for this amazing truth. Thank you for the gospel that sets us free, not puts us in bondage. Thank you for the love and grace and mercy that we find in Jesus. God, I pray that you would keep us free from legalism and bondage and free to live in grace. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.